it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We're excited to announce our latest podcast launching this week called Behind the Billions. Coming from the two co-creators of Billions, Brian Koppelman and David Levine give a behind-the-scenes look into Billions Season 5. Following each episode's airing on Showtime, the podcast will impact the writing of the script, exclusive stories from production, interviews with cast and crew, and much more. The first episode is out now, so make sure to subscribe to Behind the Billions on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, media consumers. Ryan Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here. We got lots and lots to get to today. We'll ask, when sports comes back in the near future, is it going to come back on the Las Vegas Strip? We investigate. Off the latest installments of the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, we'll talk about the curious figure of Ahmad Rashad. What was his (laughs) unusual place in sports TV in the 90s? Or if I were Marv Albert, his unusual place in sports TV of the 90s. Plus, David guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, we got to start with the big story in politics the last few weeks. That is Tara Reid's accusation of sexual assault against Joe Biden, who I think we're still obliged to call the presumptive Democratic nominee. On Friday, Biden finally responded to Reid's charges. Here he is talking to Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe. Would you please go on the record with the American people? Did you sexually assault Tara Reid? No, it is not true. I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't. It never happened. Do you remember her? Do you remember any any types of complaints that she might have made? I don't remember any type of complaint she <clears throat> may have made. It was 27 years ago. And uh, I don't remember, nor does anyone else that I'm aware of, And uh, the fact is that I don't remember. I I, I don't remember any complaint ever having been made. Have you or your campaign, have you reached out to her? No, I have not reached out to her. It's 27 years ago. This never happened. And uh, when she first made the claim, we made it clear that it never happened. And uh, that's as simple as that. Oof. I watched that interview live. I thought that, I mean, I think, you know, that clip shows Biden, I think, kind of striking the right tone if one sort of takes him at his word. But there were other moments where he wasn't as concise and he wasn't as straightforward. And and I don't think that diminishes his credibility necessarily, but it it certainly diminishes the, or it certainly underscores the political problem this is going to be for him. You know, I don't want to, I feel kind of, icky making this a political issue so quickly but but in some sense i'm not sure that we can litigate the morality of it and even if we could this has actually become a political issue and that's uh you know in large part why it's a a media issue right now well it's clear when he went into that interview that he had been told to emphasize two things 27 years ago number one a phrase he repeated over and over again. And then the phrase, the very concise phrase, it never happened, Mm -hmm. which he also said over and over again. To your point about being a political issue, I'm amazed right now at how many, whenever I read a piece about this, 
how many ideas and kind of competing forces are contained within this story. Me too, obviously. This idea about whether an accusation is itself disqualifying. Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot this week of this, the idea of will Democrats accept the standard that they pressed on Brett Kavanaugh against someone in their own ranks. Plus, beyond that, and to the political point you mentioned, there's all this dissatisfaction angst about Biden as the Democratic nominee that existed anyway. And and then I think even beyond that, there's this sort of Democratic soul-searching about what, if any, compromises should we make in our mission to defeat Donald Trump in November, right? You're saying, you know, we heard all the time, the only thing that's important is beating Donald Trump, right? That's all, that is, that is the thing. Well, you know, how, what do you sort of, you know, look away from if that's the way to do it or, or sort of put your hands up in the air if that's the goal? We've seen people tease out that idea. Should we do the procedural stuff first just to kind of put some of the facts yes, on the table please, here? Let's, let's do that. Tara Reid was a staff assistant in Biden's office in the Senate from late 1992 to 1993. Last year, Reid was one of several women to come forward with complaints of inappropriate touching by Biden. This is the stuff about Biden stroking women necks, putting his hand, fingers in their hair, et cetera, et cetera. She made this new allegation in a March 25th episode of Katie Halper's podcast. She's describing an incident in the spring of 1993 when she says she was delivering a bag to Biden, then Senator Biden, in the Senate building. This is graphic, but here's a long clip from that podcast. It, it was like the side area, and... Um... He just said, hey, come here, Tara. And then I, I handed him the thing and he greeted me. He remembered my name. And then it, we were alone and it was the strangest thing. There was no like exchange, really. He just had me up against the wall. And um, I was wearing like a skirt and, you know, business skirt, but I wasn't wearing stockings. It was kind of a hot day that day. And I was wearing heels. And I remember my legs had been hurting from the marble, you know, of the Capitol, mm -hmm. like walking. And I, so I remember that kind of stuff. I remember like I was wearing a blouse and he just had me up against the wall and the wall was cold. And I remember he, it happened all at once. The gym bag, I don't know where it went. I handed it to him, it was gone. And then his hands were on me and underneath my clothes. And um, yeah, and then he went, oh. He went down my skirt, but then up inside it, and he uh, penetrated me with his fingers, whatever. And um, I, uh, he was kissing me at the same time, and he was saying something to me. He said several things, and I can't remember everything he said. I remember a couple of things. I remember him saying first, before, like as he was doing it, do you want to go somewhere else? And then him saying to me when I pulled away, he um got finished doing what he was doing. And I kind of was pulled back and he said, he said, come on, man, I heard you liked me. Mm. And it's that phrase stayed with me because I kept thinking what I might've said. And I can't remember exactly if he said I thought or if I heard, but it, it's like he implied like that I had done this, like, I don't know. And for me, it was like every, everything shattered in that moment because I knew like, we were alone. It was over, right? He wasn't trying to do anything more, but it's, I looked up to him. He was like my father's age. He was this champion of 
women's rights in my eyes. And I couldn't believe it was happening. It didn't see, it seems surreal. Numerous media organizations, uh, as you might expect, went out to report on this. The New York Times, Washington Post, Business Insider. Reed's brother has come forward and said that he, she told him about these events. Uh, one of the strangest details, David, is this 1993 episode of Larry King Live. Reed had said that her mother called into the show to tell a version of these events at the time. Let's listen to that clip. Uh, a, a staffer uh, would do, do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't tell it. That's true. The New York Times, in their investigation, could not find Biden staff members to corroborate any details of Reed's allegation, they write. In fact, Biden's top two aides said they don't remember Reed at all, much less this allegation. Reed says she filed a complaint in 1993. This, David, has set off a hunt for the complaint itself, which may be in one of two places in which Biden's files are stored. Reed then told the AP on Friday that the complaint did not mention sexual harassment in those terms, but though she said it perhaps described behavior, we would know as sexual harassment. So that's about where we are now. We can probably pass over any sort of, you know, sort of accounting of, of Reed's Twitter account and things like that. But I kind of wonder, I think a couple of things, let me put it this way. Alex Burns of the New York Times said this on Twitter the other day, I believe, and I would totally agree, which is we're still in a fact-finding phase about this. And mm -hmm. I would I would sort of <laughs> encourage everyone with a big take to just sort of wait because, and it's not that there's going to be some huge revelation, but there this feels still like the time for reporting, does it not? And figuring out what we're going to be able to learn about this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I understand, that obviously, the argument from, I don't want to say the other side, but that seems a little bit crass, but certainly, like, there is a there is a uh, line of thought on the right that the mainstream media and the other, other various powers that be are sort of trying to hide this story and trying to, you know, slow walk the investigation and, and um, you know, hide it, for lack of a better term. And, I mean... <sighs> Obviously, the point of comparison that they'll make and that other, you know, that, that anyone will it'll come to mind for anyone is the Brent Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, there are there are functional differences. I'm not sure if any of them matter, but the functional differences are one. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the fact finding mission and the for the Kavanaugh accusations were over as soon as they were made because it was going to inevitably be one person's word against another. Right. And then there's obviously like the I mean, the, the, the confirmation issue. In some sense, it had to be fast-tracked in order to have these issues raised in time for confirmation, and the, the, the parallel to confirmation for Joe Biden will obviously be the election. The reason why they had to go into all this, go into all this history of Brent Kavanaugh is because the Senate was, was making a permanent decision. I mean, we're, we're, they were selecting someone for a permanent role in the Supreme Court, right? But all that, I mean, obviously, so th this case is very different than that one in those ways. But it does feel insufficient justifiably i mean if, if you're if, if you feel that this is is not moving sufficiently fast enough or you feel like that that uh you know 
he's not being that, that Joe Biden is not getting a sufficient amount of critique or skepticism at this point. I think that's a legitimate feeling right now. It does feel it does. There is the sense that even though we are still in the investigative phase, that you know it's it, it does seem to be moving slowly. Well, it's an interesting question, right? I saw Tom Cotton, Republican senator from Arkansas, complaining on Twitter that the MSM, the mainstream media, acts like bodyguards for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And then he included a link to a New York Times column <laughs> by Ben Smith about how the media wasn't booking Tara, Tara Reid, excuse me, on television. Uh -huh. And, oh, and yeah. you're like, you're like, well, this, you know, you realize this story is from the New York Times, which is what yeah. you're kind of accusing by by uh thing but it is interesting right that story that ran in business insider was turned down by vanity fair uh ben smith in the aforementioned column writes that the um, non-fox cable channels wouldn't book reed right and reed had sort of said at one point that she was maybe going to have an interview on fox news this weekend but she's also said i'm just trying to kind of wait to get someone meaning a tv host in the middle i don't want to be pigeonholed as a progressive i don't want to be pigeonholed as a Trump supporter. So there's a sense that Smith asks, why, ha why hasn't she been put on television? When, as we've seen with the Kavanaugh hearings, other people have been put on television to do a major interview, and she has not yet. And whether that is sort of some kind of double standard. The, uh, I think the other weird kind of media manipulation you've seen is from Team Biden, that there has been this distribution of the New York Times story that I read from as if it, completely exonerates Biden. It does nothing of the sort, right? It's just purely a story about here's what we know, right? Here's what we can find out from Reed, from people she talked to, from people in Biden's office. It just lays out the facts. That story, whatever you read, that story does not say that Joe Biden, that nothing happened back in 1993. So, and even to your point, of, and to the point about fact-finding, there's also a very, very good chance, you know, who knows what this document will show if and when it's found in the National Archives. But there's also a very, very pretty good chance, I think, that this is about the level of information we have going forward. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of up to the Democrats or whomever to figure out what they're going to do or not do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's talk about you know, the mainstream media lining up in Joe Biden's defense. If you search Tara Reid's name, the first thing that comes up is a, a op-ed from today or yesterday saying it's time for the Democrats to choose to go with plan B or to uh -huh. find a plan B. I mean, so obviously that's not, there's no monolith in support of hiding these things. And frankly, I mean, you know, critiques of bias, I think, are one thing. That this is some sort of like organized, you know, operation to to protect Joe Biden it's just ridiculous on its face because that would look like something different than what we're experiencing now, right? I mean, MSNBC would not make Joe Biden go on and plead his innocence. They would just ignore the allegation altogether, right? The New York Times would just say, would just have people saying in passing, that's a lie that never happened, right? I mean, the, the, the best defense would look different than this. That's, that goes without saying. I don't even know why I'm wasting my time on it. But, you know, there was a ben, the Ben Smith column where he interviewed Dean Bacay about why it took 19 days for them, you know, from the first allegation or the first recent allegation for them to report on the thing. And, you know, Bacay is a compelling figure and he's his, his logic is sympathetic, but it's sympathetic in some ways because you see that you get you very quickly get to the end of like you, or you kind of wear out the extremes of journalism logic. Right. Like, like you can and, and you just see someone sort of going with their gut and. 
you know, to say that like that's not the lesson that we have learned in the Me Too era would not be inaccurate, right? I mean, that you that that someone that Dean Bacay, some you know, anyone in his chair probably shouldn't be in the position of deciding just to not cover something for three weeks, based on where we've been over the past year. But it's you know, it's it's a it's definitely a tough situation. Yeah, and it's and it's easy for us to say, right? Why don't you just get a story up about this? What what is what's taking so long? You know. Whereas if you're the New York Times, you know that whatever story you print, as we see with the Biden camp sort of misusing it, is going to be treated as sort of a definitive word or at least a partially definitive word on this topic, right? So you want to be incredibly careful about getting it right, that you're not putting something out into the universe that turns out to be wrong, that turns out to miss something, right? That turns out to elevate or... or downplay something. I mean, you, you're just trying to get a thousand things right there. So I do have some sympathy for that. Were you surprised at all about the number of democratic politicians who came to Biden's pretty immediate defense? I was interested because Reed said this to Buzzfeed. She says it was really devastating when Kirsten Gillibrand and Stacey Abrams and Hillary Clinton all in the same day, just basically implied my story wasn't true. And they believed Joe Biden. I can't describe to you what that felt like. I cried for a while. She continues because they're important in my life. They've been figures that I looked up to. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's impossible. I mean, it's, I, you can understand why she would feel that way. Um, and I would, and it, and it was sort of surprising to see somebody, everybody come out so forcefully. If there's any evidence of conspiracy, maybe that's it. I mean, you know, it's, it's third degree or whatever, but like, Right. And whether it's conspiracy or just old fashioned rallying around, you know, your friend, the candidate. Right. Or maybe those maybe those mean the same thing. I don't know. But in this case, it certainly feels like I mean, listen, regardless of whether or not the accusation is true, and maybe this is what the people who are rallying behind Joe Biden are telling themselves, there is an aspect of the political uh, resurfacing of, of this charge. That, I mean, the way that the that the the media on the right and, and Trump himself are are treating the matter. That feels like pure politics. It feels like the playbook Trump was using four years ago when he showed up at the debate with the you know Clinton accusers, Bill Clinton accusers. He tries to mitigate his own flaws, his own you know campaign liabilities by just saying you know you did it too. Like this is this isn't a me thing. This is an us thing. Right, and confuse it as much as possible. Yes, right? and yeah, exactly. I was so fascinated by the way a feature of this to see in both the big New York times and Washington post investigation pieces that like a third of the way into the piece, there was this huge paragraph that said, by the way, Donald Trump is way worse. Mm -hmm. No matter what you think about this allegation it was almost like, this is our, what about shield because yeah. everybody's going to come to us and say, you're, you're falling. You're going to do the, but her emails bit again about this. And there were these big paragraphs in there. There's like, no, no, we're not, we're not equating this by the way. You know, many, many more accusations against Donald Trump than there are against Joe Biden. Just one minor point. The, you know, Trump, and, and this isn't really in his defense or anything else, but, you know, the, what, the, the one powerful thing that he has is that he never claimed to have the moral high ground. So it's fine to say he's contradicting or, you know, it's, it, that he's being self-contradictory. Um, he's blaming someone else for something that he's done. But, you know... I think to a lot of people out there, especially the Me Too skeptics, which um, there are more of than you know we know, you know the the kind of just desserts aspect of what uh, of this uh, the, just the political side of it, I think is probably compelling. You know, 
Trump didn't claim to be morally superior. That was that that that's what it is perceived that his opponents have done. Couple of thoughts going forward on this as we think about this issue in the coming weeks, and we will certainly talk about it again here. This is from the Washington Post, Ruth Marcus. She says, what would make this decision, and that means to replace Biden as the Democratic nominee, if it comes to that, so difficult, is that the imperative of defeating Trump is so powerful. This is not an ordinary political contest against an ordinary incumbent. Ensuring that Trump does not enjoy another four years in office may be enough to justify egregious hypocrisy, but it would be hypocrisy nonetheless, right? She's getting at that idea here that Democrats are so desperate to beat Trump. And what does that mean? What what does that push you to do that you might not do under normal circumstances? Alex Breen has a good piece in The New Republic resisting the idea that the Democrats' choice here is either to stick with Biden or reelect Trump. He says, no, 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 that's a false choice, right? The primaries are not over because most of the primaries never happen to begin with. There's plenty of time between now and November. So if the Democrats decided at some point that they should replace Biden, they could do that. There's nothing to stop them from doing that. If again, that's the decision they ultimately came to about this. So just two ideas to keep in mind as we go forward. and, And all I would say is if there's any part of this, that's like, the the conspiracy theory or whatever else that's compelling to me this point and this is so minor and so imaginary but if biden were disqualified today then bernie sanders would be the nominee and all those people rushing to joe biden's defense have i think have pretty clearly staked their claim that they don't want bernie sanders to be the nominee well that's what i mean that's what i mean when you think of the the cross currents going through this right and that's not to impugn any particular person right but there's just a whole lot of, you know, down the list somewhere, there is a whole lot of other things coursing through this story. Yeah. And part of it is, well, what happens if we get rid of Biden? Who's the nominee? And I didn't like Biden to begin with anyway, right? Or I wasn't sure about Biden, or I didn't think he really deserved the Democratic nomination anyway. I thought he was just kind of a, you know, the safe, the quote unquote safe choice, who now maybe is not the safe choice. I don't know. I mean, we've already gone through the... Ukraine scandal. I'm sure that it's going to resurface soon. And now this, I mean, I don't know if, if there's any such thing as a safe choice in this day and age, certainly not, you know, running against Donald Trump, but it does seem more fraught than ever. If you, uh, hear David and I having a lack of, uh, certainties and big takes in this segment, that's on purpose, by the way, because more to come. And, um, I want to read more before I have any big opinions about what should happen and what's going to happen. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod. On Friday, David, new White House press secretary Kaylee McEnany brought back the White House briefing. (laughs) It had been a while. And she made this promise to reporters. So, um, will you pledge never to lie to us from that podium? I will never lie to you. You have my word on that. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write that, in fact, was a lie, mm-hmm. thanks to Steve Fenster. And by the way, not just a joke, because according to Daniel Dale and company, McEnany mischaracterized a Friday tweet by Trump about protesters in Michigan, gave an inflated figure for the cost of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, et cetera, et cetera. So we we did not keep that promise even through the end of the briefing. 
David, did you read about murder hornets anytime over the last 48 hours? They certainly saw a lot of headlines about things. The official name is the Asian giant hornet. These hornets have invaded North America. They have a really cool orange and black look. They look like they could have been a Transformers character from our youth. Uh, The New York Times reports that murder hornets, quote, can wipe out a beehive, a honey beehive, in a matter of hours, decapitating the bees and flying away with the thoraxes to feed the young. All right. (laughs) So so murder murder hornet cuts off your head and carries your chest back to feed its babies. That is what murder hornet does. Fantastic. Um, Murder hornet will also attack you if you're not a bee. One entomologist went to destroy a hive and got attacked. He described the sensation as like having red hot thumbtacks being driven into my flesh. Ooh. Murder hornets. By the way, I read this piece in the physical New York Times on Sunday, and I was like, oh, that was a kind of a cool nature story. I go to Twitter. Maybe I should just, you know, just tweet the link or something. And and like I saw that my one of my favorite Dallas sports radio hosts was already putting pictures of the murder hornet up. And I'm like, okay, we're done here. This is <laughs> this reached the saturation point. <laughs> I have nothing to add. Anyway, murder hornets. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, legally, until they're convicted, we have to refer to them as alleged murder hornets. Thanks to Teresa Clift. <laughs> if you married insect humor and the pedantry of a veteran city editor, congrats, you made the overworked <laughs> Twitter joke of the week. David, let's talk about a plan for sports leagues to come back in Las Vegas. But first, this message from The Ringer. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast on The Ringer Podcast Network that we are launching this week. It's called TV Concierge. It's only available on Spotify. These are 12 to 15-minute mini-podcasts that review the latest TV shows streaming on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, HBO, Showtime, FX, Apple TV, wherever else. We'll preview new shows that are launching. We'll break down the biggest shows that just launched. We'll review the biggest binge-watch seasons that drop as they happen. It's our new TV Concierge podcast from the Ringer Podcast Network. Think of it like a little bit of a playlist. Pick and choose the ones you want to listen to. It's available only on Spotify. All right, David, in the notebook dump, sports are trying to come back. So I hear uh, we've seen various harebrained plans. This one stood out. It was in a Friday piece by the New York Times as Kevin Draper. MGM Resorts International has pitched basically every sports league except the NFL on a plan to bring back sports on the Las Vegas Strip. MGM, which has an ownership stake in 12 hotels in Las Vegas, has proposed the creation of, quote, a fully quarantined campus, Draper writes, Essentially, one full block of the Las Vegas Strip where players would live and play out whatever schedule the league wants, the leagues want, excuse me. The athletes would be joined by their families, league and broadcast media employees, as well as the staff and vendors needed to serve them. So in other words, instead of the plumbers convention that would be happening on the Las Vegas Strip right now, mm-hmm. we would just replace those with athletes and they would yeah. play their season there. What do we think of this? I mean, practically, it sounds like a good idea, right? I mean, if I don't, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> no, I mean, th- th- I think people have been floating some some variation on this idea since the epidemic kind of took hold. Like, why don't you just like let's send every send athletes to the you know some enclosed space and let them play for 
common enjoyment. Um, yeah, there've been a lot of biodomes proposed. There've been a lot of biodomes. I, I uh, obviously there's, uh, you know, Las Vegas. There's Disneyland as an option for you know where some of this <laughs> basketball could take place at least. Um, I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense, right? It's like you, you're trying to solve a problem, then the first place you should look. I mean, maybe you can solve two problems at one time, and the you know look for places with totally empty tourism industries. I mean, the places that depend on the tourism industry that are suffering so dramatically from the absence of that right now. It does seem though like it's sort of a proxy fight. Like we are very, very interested in working out the logistics of how an NBA season could look because that is a conversation you can have on Twitter and how to come up with a vaccine is not a conversation you can have on Twitter. <laughs> yes. It's it's much more fun to say, can we play sports at Disney World than to talk about like the six months of clinical trials we need for the vaccine. I'm a little weirded out by just picking places where it seems really fun to be anyway for sports. Like, are we just confining like possible venues or sports leagues to places you would have a bachelor party? <laughs> Is that the idea here? You do point out about Vegas, 25% unemployment, Draper writes, Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Control Group Goodman, remember her, tells the Times, mm -hmm. we are unique and we depend on crowds, and now we've become a mecca for major league sports. You can't enjoy those things, and life isn't worthwhile if you limit what people can do. I believe the article also said that um, the casinos would be open for the players. No, players are in, and the support personnel are the only ones in these Las Vegas hotels under this proposal. But the casino would be open, <laughs> which seems Where really like the reason to put them. This is why they're there, right? I mean, this is not the, you know, it's like, well, we've got a place for you to play. But most importantly, the tables will be open. Where does like Caesar's Palace is empty except for the dealers rank on your list of like night at the museum? Like what? Like like fantasies. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's really funny because in the last dance, they made a big deal out of Michael Jordan going to Atlantic City until like 2.30 in the morning uh -huh. on a game day. That would be every day if the NBA is there. No need to go to bed, right? I mean, you could just you just kind of come back. That's the whole point of a casino is that you never really need to stop being in public. You could just go eat. You can go, you know, play, play, some, uh, play some cards. <laughs> that would be pretty great, man. I, I got to tell you, if you have your loved ones there, your friends, your teammates, and there's no line at the steakhouse in the Mirage <laughs> or whatever, yeah, I mean, that could be pretty fun. <laughs> I do like this race to become the hero of the sports comeback. I think mm -hmm. Peter Schrager and Simmons were talking about this last week of, like, Jerry Jones possibly swooping in and bringing everybody to North Texas because uh -huh. he's got a nice practice facility there. Like, hey, we can have the whole NFL here. Just everybody's kind of competing to be the party host for the comeback <laughs> it's like nothing but goodwill right accrues to you you know like oh that's the las vegas casinos want to bring sports back i feel i feel good about them all of a sudden as opposed to a place where i just go and drop money let's talk about Ahmad rashad for a second if you were watching episodes five and six of the michael jordan documentary on espn last night the last dance and you weren't a child of the 90s you might have <laughs> discovered a curious figure nbc sports is Ahmad rashad Rashad David was the host of Inside Stuff, sideline reporter. Mm -hmm. Maybe most notably, though, a Michael Jordan confidant. Yeah. 
And in one amazing scene last night, Rashad was driving with Michael Jordan from his house to the NBA finals. Right. So if he had to submit an expense report to NBC sports that week, he didn't need to expense the limo to get to work because he was riding with Michael Jordan. There was a scene last week. I think it was last week where he was in the team plane on the team plane or team bus, but off camera. And someone, and there was some conversation about whether or not a pl- one of the players was was richer than Ahmad Rashad, and Jordan's like, no, but Ahmad Rashad wishes that he was that rich. <laughs> First of all, that sent me down like a 30-second rabbit hole of just like trying to imagine what Ahmad Rashad was getting paid in, you know, the 90s or whatever. Like, I just have no frame of reference for that. But, yeah, he was just sort of, even when he's not on camera, he's there. He's He's present, you know, and he's omnipresent you might say omnipresent yeah i there seems to be i mean god i mean the journalistic ethics violations are just i'm not sure what the you know inside nba inside stuff code of conduct said back then but (laughs) the handbook but but there was it wasn't just that there was also the and obviously this is an extreme example but there was a thing about magic johnson who was calling the nba finals that year spending every night in michael jordan's hotel room Right. I mean, <laughs> playing, that was, playing cards, playing cards, which is obviously you got you don't get Magic Johnson, you know, on the broadcast team for his down the middle, you know, unbiased eye. But still, it did seem like there was he was probably, you know, to, to some extent, he was probably there because he was going to spend every night in Michael Jordan's hotel room. And Ahmad Rashad probably fits that that description, too, although Ahmad Rashad is an incredibly talented broadcaster. Proximity to Michael Jordan. I mean, before, you know. People gave Brian Windhorst shit for being too embedded in the LeBron James camp, and a lot of that's totally unjustifiable. Uh, there was Ahmad Rashad who was like just basically like you know having nights out on the town and like you know just carousing with Michael Jordan to all hours. Not even insult Windhorst by I me. Mean, Windhorst is Upton Sinclair compared to Ahmad <laughs> Rashad. I mean, I'm not going to bring bring Brian in here. He's a, he's a journalist. The um. First no, of, of all, course. No, 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 but seriously, the point no, I want to I, make no, is, I just don't want anybody to think that like no. the comparison is that. And I, and I don't want anyone to take that from what I said. The point that I, the only point that I want to make is people are very interested in that critique in the modern era, right? People are very interested in busting a reporter's balls or just, or, or by, you know, trying to hurt, hurt somebody's career by impugning their journalistic integrity. That is not something <laughs> that anybody was interested in in the 90s. No, not not as much anyway. I mean, I think you would have seen the media critics of that age, your Norman Chads and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure I remember them taking shots at Ahmad Rashad, like the buddy buddy done with Michael Jordan. That was a topic. I'm pretty sure. I mean, to explain Ahmad Rashad to the kids, imagine somebody who had very genuine athletic cred himself. He was a really good wide receiver in the NFL who had a friendship with Michael Jordan and who had no conventional journalistic ambitions whatsoever. That was Ahmad Rashad. And it was also, I think, David, it's worth saying, it was this particular moment in media because by the time the Bulls get good, which is the period in this, the walls are really coming down between reporters and NBA players, right? In the the Mm -hmm. 80s, you used to be able to go in there and talk to Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. That is kind of done. Right. Yeah. But it's still an old media world. Right. We don't we don't have Twitter and that kind of stuff. So I think the way to think of Ahmad Rashad is kind of like a prequel to the Players Tribune. 
right? He, <laughs> right. he, he barely, you know, he was the guy like Michael Jordan needs to get, needs to say something. Let's get a moderate shot over here. And in fact, this literally happens in the doc last night. I think it's for the 93 finals where they've been talking about Michael Jordan's gambling problem or, or gambling, let us right. say love, love of gambling. And he's like, calls a moderate shot. Let's do the interview right now before game one. I'm going to wear sunglasses on television, which was an incredible <laughs> look. And we're going to get everything out right here. That was a moderate shot. That was kind of his lane on television in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, honestly, he has more of a role in my, you know, memory, my basketball memory is growing up than almost any player. Right. I mean, he was like I mentioned NBA inside stuff. He was always doing courtside stuff or like player interviews. He was just he was omnipresent back then, too. Like in, you know, in, in basketball media before there were all these basketball talking heads that every fan can name check. Right. I mean, he was he was one of the yes. originals. Him and I guess Peter Vesey, who's sort of been a missing voice from this documentary so far. But, you know, Vesey had this Jim Gray. Yeah. Jim Gray, for sure. But yeah, I mean, it was. Ahmad Rashad was, uh, I mean, is just such an incredible character, an incredible character. And seeing him, seeing catching up with him, you know, he still looks great. <laughs> he still, I'm, I'm, I don't know how plugged in he still is into the into the Jordan verse, but uh, but uh, he seems like he's doing. I'm good. guessing pretty plugged in because I would see, you'd see. The thing is, he's basically mostly retired from television. I hope I'm not insulting him here, but like at the NCAA tournament every few years, you'd see him sitting with Michael Jordan in the stands. Like they were still doing a post game interview, you know. Like he yeah. was still, he just, he was, he had never, Amadou Rashad was still on the beat, you know. <laughs> this is basically the rationale for every podcast that exists. It's like, hey, we're having these conversations anyway. Why don't we just pick up a microphone? Oh, absolutely. Mike Amadou Rashad right now would be hosting the boardroom on ESPN, <laughs> like the Kevin Durant. Because somebody asks us this, Isaac Chip says, "Who's today's Amadou Rashad?" Dude has literally been low key in every episode of this of this show and i think that's probably the right the right sort of character today right if michael jordan had been playing in an era where he was making media shows in a way that like kevin durant is now or something like this ahmad would have been the guy he would have chosen to host the show with him oh for sure or like the barber shop of the of its day like ahmad would be like can we get ahmad in here is ahmad free mm-hmm but even without that, Ahmad had an incredible run. I saw on Wikipedia, he hosted NBA Inside Stuff. NBA Inside Stuff was, was if anybody does not remember, this was a Saturday morning show. Yeah. Kind of ran alongside cartoons on Saturday morning. That it, was was just like the, very... it was like the outro. It was the, it was the segue from cartoons to the real world. Yes, that's good. Yeah, right. And then like this, a televangelist came on after NBA Inside Stuff or something, or a mash rerun. You know, something <laughs> yeah. like that. He hosted NBA Inside Stuff for 16 years. <laughs> like a Carson-like run on Inside Stuff. Absolutely, absolutely incredible. But yeah, like, you know, when we think of like Doris Burke or basically anybody who's on the sidelines now, they're not really comparable to Ahmad Rashad. I don't think they're comparable at all. They're more comparable to Jim Gray, I think, is it would be the more of the comp in that in that age. And yeah. and by the way, I'm missing in this documentary Marv Albert, who's apparently not interviewed. Peter Vesey, you mentioned, who was not only one of the biggest NBA writers of that era, but a big presence on NBC as well. I'm missing Jim Gray, so far at least. I'm missing Bob Ryan. Where's Bob Ryan? 
I'm missing Jack McCallum back in the 90 and back in the 80s CBS NBA days. I'm missing Pat O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Where are these guys? I know you can't get everybody, but really no Marv. We're going to, we're going to leave out Marv here. Yeah. It sure looks that way. I mean, listen, the, the, this is documentaries built on the, on the archival footage. Everybody else is just telling the story, but it would be nice. It would be nice to see Costas and Marv and, and, uh, Oh, Costas we have. Oh no, we Costas we have, sorry. Um, but it would, it would be nice to see Marv. That That's for sure. The other thing that's interesting in this, and maybe we'll talk about this more down the line. But this whole lot, this moment in 93, which is essentially what part of the episodes were about yesterday, when all this gambling information comes out on Michael Jordan. And you and I were young back then, and it was so shocking because there was no Michael Jordan, you know, Reddit where you could go to and go, oh, well, let, let me let me find out all the stuff people are whispering about. Like that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So essentially you had commercial Michael Jordan on the Gatorade ad or the Nike ad with Mars Blackman. And then he's called to testify in this trial. This book by Richard Eskinas comes out, which I said on Twitter last night that I like had my mom drive me to the bookstore to buy because I could not drive uh, <laughs> because I was so eager to read it. The book is called Michael and me Our gambling addiction dot, dot, dot my cry for help. <laughs> because it was not only about all the stuff like I gambled with Michael Jordan, but I am having a cry for help because I am addicted to gambling myself, says Richard Deskinas. I ba- I only barely remembered the existence of that book. And uh, and definitely, I mean, and, and watching it on TV last night, I wasn't sure that it was actually like a real published book. I'm kind of surprised to, say, to hear that you went to the bookstore to get it. But I guess this was in the day before like Amazon.com self-publishing. So I guess it, uh, a book was a book was a book back then. Yeah. And it was, and it dropped like a bomb because there wasn't a way to find out that kind of information other than like in a book or a newspaper story. And again, how much was your local newspaper covering Michael Jordan on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. other than in the NBA finals or in the NBA playoffs. Like most likely you're reading about your local team. It's not like you could go get an out of town newspaper, but I do want to see, and I want to see where this doc goes in the next, in the next episode when Jordan retires for the first time, because it did feel to me a little bit like the media was being made to this boogeyman kind of thing. Yeah, that's definitely true. You know, we're tisk tisking, you know, all those reporters getting on Michael Jordan for going out and gambling till two 30. I'm sure there were some, very huffy takes back in the nineties. In fact, I guarantee there were, but Michael Jordan, uh, uh, the most famous basketball player in the world, gambling in Atlantic city till two 30 in the morning during the Eastern conference finals. I'm sorry. That's a story. It'd be a story today. Yeah. Michael Jordan being called in a gambling trial. You know, can you imagine LeBron James got called as a witness in a trial like that? <laughs> of course that would be a story. Of course, that would be a story. Was it overkill? I'm sure it was. Were there some bad takes? I'm sure there were. But this idea that that mean old media made Michael Jordan mad. Come on, man. I don't don't even like the implication of that. I totally agree with you. Uh, So don't. So what I'm about to say is not. I mean, take it for what it's worth. But I think. For those of us who aren't regular media, media scrum participants, and I think the vast majority of people viewing this fall into that category. Yeah, uh, to clean the two hosts of this podcast, by the way, go ahead. One of the most incredible, I mean, just really like one of the one of the few things that floored me as a, you know, writer, or, you know, someone in the media world uh, was just the 
the scrum that Jordan walked into every single night when all the other teammates were out the back door and he was like, guys, I got to go do media. And he walks out the side door into where, where there are what conservatively like 30 people with cameras of all various kinds and microphones all already shoved into the corner where Jordan will stand. Totally. And he has to just go stand with all these lights in his face. I mean, I'm sure everybody watching is like, Oh, they really can't see anything when they're doing these things. You know, like what, like, and the fact that he was able to engage with people there seemingly on a human level was pretty incredible too. I mean, the, the, just the whole thing was, listen, the media should not be made into a boogeyman, certainly. But at the same time, man, I was, I was sort of wowed at what he had to go through on a regular basis. Absolutely. And that's what I'm talking about, you know, in terms of like the walls coming down, right? Mm-hmm. It had just gotten so popular. You know, it was popular with Magic and Larry. I'm not denying that and all that stuff, but it had just with the dream team, with the 90s, with Jordan himself, with Jordan being such a commercial icon in addition to an NBA icon, it had just taken this huge step. And, you know, in a way, Michael Jordan was just meeting what was this kind of inevitable step up in the coverage. There was going to be more of it. There was going to be more skeptical coverage. There was going to be coverage that unearthed things he didn't want to talk about, like gambling. Unless it was Ahmad Rashad doing the interview, but he didn't, it was just, you know, it was sort of this inevitable place and, and we can talk about, you know, was it bad and what, did it change everything? And all this it's stuff. I mean, it leads to where we are today, right? Where you walk into any NBA locker room, you know, with the exception of some small market, really bad teams. And there are just a ton of people in there. Yeah. A ton of people for your regular, you know, regular season game, much less, the playoffs of the finals. All right, let's do David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Whoop whoop. Monday's headline about Donald Trump was Bleach him. Today's headline comes. I guess I was waiting for a laugh. Today's headline comes from Alex Panhands. I hope you're saying your name right, Alex. Uh, Panhands, Panhands. It's from the Associated Press. Those scamps of the AP, David. They were reporting on the Miami Dolphins release of defensive end Taco Charlton. Former failed Dallas Cowboys draft choice, Taco Charlton. Uh-huh. So I need a headline about the Dolphins getting rid of Taco, which has a slight eating in the time of coronavirus reference. What was the AP's strained pun headline? Uh, it's not Charlton Chew. Ch- Charleston Chew. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, um, Charlton chew out would be when uh, Taco yeah. was reprimanded for for not hustling. Um, Charlton, oh, I was gonna, I was thinking more like Char- Charlton chewed up and spit out. Uh, oh, the, that's good. Uh, so it's a taco pun that I'm going for here. Yeah, yeah. Um, taco, uh, no uh, social distancing, uh, closed. What is it? Um, how do we eat in a? How do we? How do we interact with restaurants? Uh, no, delivery. Would, yeah, right. We wouldn't eat inside the restaurant. We would get it to go. Oh, tacos to go. Taco to go. Dolphins to- order taco to go. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Pretty solid for a wire service. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. David is unconvinced. Research by Chris Almeida. Production <laughs> magic by Erica Cervantes. We're back Thursday with listener mail. Send it now, people. And of course, more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you, Brian.